What I'm going to talk about today is a political ecology of food security. And uh, this is the way that I'm going to proceed. First of all, through defining what food security is, and then talk about the kinds of security we're talking about. And then when we start thinking about it carefully, we think, find that actually there are so many ecological issues intertwined in this that it actually makes it very difficult to, uh, to think through. But of course, we think about food security as being the food we eat. But actually, defining what food we eat and what food we'd like to eat may often, in many parts of the world, be two different things. Um, in India, for example, people are very clear about the food they'd like to eat. But oftentimes, income alone doesn't permit them to get that diet. We would say the same about the UK, Canada, United States where poorer people may have some ideas about what they'd like to eat, but their budget simply will not permit it. So food security isn't just a matter of how much food you produce. There are other things that constrain what people can actually eat. <coughs> and when we think about security, we also have to think about the flip side of this, which is, which is vulnerability. And we can think about vulnerable communities. Often the ones that are constrained by income are vulnerable communities. But communities can be constrained uh, in other ways. For example, warfare is a well-known factor that constrains food security. Uh, a little anecdote, if I may, going back to 1994, just after the uh, Serbian-Bosnian conflict, I was um, invited to uh, speak... <coughs> in Croatia on a uh, beautiful island called Far, and everything was done just so, perfect in many ways. And uh, I did a stupid thing on a Sunday morning, which was I caught the wrong bus going to the airport uh, when I got to a place called Split. And so I ended up hitchhiking. I stuck my thumb out. My life changed for the next eight hours or so, quite spectacularly but not devastatingly so. Um, somebody stopped and he said, yes, I'm going to Osijek, and yet I could drop you in Zagreb. Yep, that's possible. So we drove, quite furiously, through what had been um, uh, territory in conflict during the Croatian-Serb war. Um, I was driving at 60 miles an hour at one stage, pulled over by the police and I made all the excuses, I'm late, I've got to get a plane, da, da, da. here's my passport, poured it, everything out, I said, no, 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 no. He said, no, mines, mines, easy. So, you know, if I'd have skidded off that road, it wouldn't have just been a car crash, we would have crashed and burned, and perhaps blown up as well. It would have been quite an interesting Interesting, interesting journey. As it was, I got the plane from, uh, from, from Zagreb to London. I drank scotch on the flight back. In a way, I never drank scotch before. Um, and as we crossed this landscape, there were many burnt-out houses. There were piles of white goods, washing machines, refrigerators, microwaves, things that had been looted from people's houses. Uh, the landscape was... There was completely disordered, grass that was growing this high. It was completely out of production. The fact that they'd landmined this area meant that this was a huge tract 
of agricultural productivity that was simply could not be reclaimed until the place had been cleared by mines. This is you know, particularly poignant if you are a European, uh, because here's a war in Europe happening again, um, and here's um, you know, something that, that can very easily take, take land out of production. And yet, you, know, you can go across Africa, and across um, the Middle East, and there are huge tracts of land that simply are not part of the, uh, part of the uh, agricultural landscape. Okay, climate change is the other issue, of course. And so I'll talk about these things towards, uh, towards the end. But we'll start off with some definitions. There are many definitions of food security, but I'm going to stay with international agency ones. What is food security? This, of course, is a very broad statement. The physical, social and economic access to sufficient, safe and nutritious food that meets the dietary needs and food preferences of a population for an active and healthy life. You can unpack this. The physical access, it's got to be there on, in the shop if you need to buy it. It needs to be there in the market. Uh, it needs to be affordable. And it needs to meet social constraints about the consumption of particular foods. Um, in the 1947 Bengal famine... Um, when one, which was one of the first that the international agencies got to grips with trying to sort out uh, food security. Bengal is a predominantly uh, rice-consuming area. What did Europe send? It sent wheat. People didn't know what to do with wheat. Something as simple as that. You'd say, so substitute one grain for another, it should be okay. It isn't necessarily okay, because people don't know what to do with it. These days in India, if you sent wheat to Bengal, people wouldn't know what to do with it, because India's become a much more cosmopolitan country. So uh, rice eaters consume wheat, wheat eaters consume rice, and so the diet within the Indian subcontinent has become incredibly, you know, has become much more cosmopolitan within a South Asian context. So when we think about globalization of, 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 of food, there's actually many local effects, and that's one of them. And then sufficient, there needs to be enough food. It needs to be safe. That is, it's no good putting food out there if it's going to make people ill. And again, in Euro-America, we can take for granted um, food safety. If anything is unsafe on the supermarket shelves, it's recalled by companies instantly. And they'll take the whole batch out of, out of, out of, out of the consumption cycle immediately. Um, there are places where food safety isn't guaranteed. For example, um, across the um, uh, African continent, it's estimated that around a quarter of the grain production uh, in, that, in, uh, in, in the continent is contaminated in one way or another, mostly by aflatoxins, mostly by moulds that, uh, uh, that result in, in, in uh, uh, aflatoxin concentration in, the, in those foods. And again, aflatoxins are very common, um, but in Europe and the United States, there's very stringent, Canada, Australia, there's very stringent control of aflatoxins, but there are many places in the world where that is not so. Um, it meets the dietary needs. Now, the complexity with dietary needs is that this has to be in relation to dietary recommendations. And while there are international dietary recommendations, how much protein, how much energy, how much um, fat, how much um, uh, calcium, iron, vitamin A, and so on, uh, people need, there's great variation from country to country. Uh, the example of India is an interesting one. 
in that for a long time they have set their recommendations lower um, than in other countries. They've set it lower because shorter Indians don't need as much food. So you can eradicate a nutritional problem by lowering the nutritional recommendations. That is, that is quite clear. And it also needs to meet the food preferences. And then, not just to survive, but actually be fully functioning, engaged social human beings. When it reads like that, it reads like a human right. Food insecurity is another way of putting, putting the term malnutrition out there. Except malnutrition is an embodied experience. It is somebody, an individual, not getting enough food. It's the body count of not getting enough food. Whereas food insecurity is a much bigger systemic, ecological uh, kind, of, kind of concept. People are undernourished due to the physical unavailability of food, their lack of social or economic access, or inadequate food utilisation. Their food intake falls below their minimum calorie requirements. Now that is a telling sentence, because it's reducing food security and food insecurity to falling below minimum calorie requirements. It's not about dietary quality. It's about getting the bare minimum of the bare essential nutrient. That is enough energy to survive. So when we talk about food insecurity, where it's described, where places are described as being food insecure, they are using the most conservative measure of food insecurity possible. They're not even saying allowing people um, the, 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 the privilege of, of, uh, of uh, attaining a, a diet that is of, 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 of higher quality. So f food security can be thought of as a human right to be understood in biological, social, and or cultural terms. There's a biology to it. Uh, there's a social component to it, that inequality denies access. And there's a cultural component to it in that people have food preferences. People know what they would like to eat. They don't always get what they would like to eat, but they know what they would like to eat. Now... We think about food insecurity as something that happens in places like Africa. We think about food insecurity as something of a, as something of a, a third world component to it, if you will. But this is a picture um, of a woman and her children during the Great Depression in the United States, the 1930s, which was a period of intense food insecurity in the United States. This is, okay, more contemporary U.S., where you couldn't, you couldn't conceive of food insecurity as ever being an issue in the U.S. You could not imagine food insecurity. You could say the same about the Koreas. Koreas went through a period of intense food insecurity in the 1950s um, and even into the, into the 1960s because of, you know, because of the Korean Wars. And, uh, you know, now you think about... Uh, about these places as being quite secure. But the implications, the significance of this, is that there are two big pieces of policy that are totally tied into, into, into food insecurity experienced in the United States and in Europe. If we think about the formation of the European Union, the Common Agricultural Policy was established in 1957. It remains the cornerstone of European Union policy. Agricultural policy is at the heart 
of what the European Union argues over, over where the subsidies should go, who should get them, should the new nations get larger subsidies for, 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 for development. And one of the reasons for this is because Europe in World War II went through one of its most recent, through its most recent uh, period of food insecurity. Even in Germany there was intense food insecurity. In the Netherlands they had the great the, 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 the famine of 1944-45 when the Germans annexed all of the uh, uh, agricultural production from, from the Netherlands to, to, to Germany. Um, wheat supplies from, from, from Canada were blockaded. Um, and you know, part of the, the, the war effort was blockading food to food to uh, to uh, uh, UK, to France, to the countries that were um, allied with uh, UK and the US. In the United States, 1973 saw the first formal farm bill, and you know, the farm bill comes around more or less every seven years, and it determines many things. It determines not only what should be grown but what should be subsidised, how it should be processed. Um, it determines um, international trade policies, how, where the US should be trading its agricultural products to. It is not something that just influences the United States. It has global impact. And it's something that also drives a significant part of the world food system. So it's not an innocuous thing. Okay, was Malthus right? Okay, for those that don't know, um, Malthus wrote in 1798 um, his first edition of um, an essay on the principle of population where he observed that if the population of this country, the United Kingdom, was to carry on growing at the rate it's growing, it would soon outstrip its potential for, uh, for, for being able to feed itself. Um, was Malthus right? Was Malthus wrong? Well, it swings backwards and forwards, and in recent times, there's a view that Malthus was probably wrong, and we can look at figures for food production, per capita food production, total food production um, in the world uh, across, let's say, from 1961 as a, as a baseline, that food production has carried on increasing, uh, per capita food availability has carried on increasing, and when we get into the uh, earliest part of this millennium, food prices have never been cheaper than they have ever been. I've argued in previous years that if you cannot sort out the problem of undernutrition now, you probably never will. Because the climate was absolutely ideal for it. Food prices which underpin food availability in, in the global arena have never been lower. A few things have changed since 2003. And I'll show you show you where we are now, which is actually a period of, 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 of uncertainty with respect to world food supply. So the question, was Malthus right? Well, Malthus is coming back into the, into, into the picture. <clears throat> In the year 2007, there, were, there was an oil shock and there was a food price shock. Prices, prices of oil went up. Prices of food went up, and to some extent, you can argue that when oil goes up, food prices go up, largely because you cannot produce huge amounts of food in an intensive way 
without consuming fossil fuels at the moment. And those fossil fuels do various things. They, um, they uh, uh, produce the fertilizers, they fuel the trucks that, uh, and, and farm machinery that, that, uh, that uh, till the land. Um, they, uh, they, they fuel the trucks that take food from one place to another. Um, they fuel the refrigerators that, that uh, chill perishable goods uh, from, from one place to another. So it's huge um, investment in, in, uh, in, in oil in, in producing the food that we have. It's not directly translatable. When we look at the 2007-2008 oil price shock, um, when we look at the price of all of these commodities, wheat, maize, rice, sugar, beef, and so on, all of these things, when we get to 2007, went through a dramatic shock. At that time, total unpredictability about what was what was going to uh, what was going to happen, um, and these are all instabilities that are clearly related to where is the oil going to come from, and this is one outcome of certain kinds of foreign policy. Um, you know, if you could argue um, that you know the Iraq. War was about oil. Um, if you can argue about, you know, who can, uh, that, that 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 was about who controls those particular resources, um, then when you create instability in a region that is that has a particular keystone resource like oil in the present day, it has ripple through effects through many uh, politically related systems, including including food. What's happened since then, of course, um, is that food prices, you know. They've gone up um, considerably since uh, uh, since the beginning uh, of this of this millennium. Um, in some places, they've doubled, but they've more or less more or less stabilised. These are commodity prices. These are the prices not in the shop, but the prices at which commodities are traded, um, predominantly in Chicago, because commodities are traded in, in, in futures markets. Um, the first commodities trading started in, um, in 1851, um, and um, the idea that one predicts food supply into the future and sets the price in relation to what next year's harvest is going to do is already a hundred. That system is already 150 years old. The argument is that if you can, if you predict prices on the basis of of, of, of a forthcoming harvest, you should be you should stabilise the system. But actually, it also means that people can speculate in respect of, in respect of uh, food price futures. And so if you get crazy speculation, as happened um, in 2007-2008, uh, then this can throw food prices around all over the place. So in terms of oil, um, as I've already said, fertilizer use is not just um, the uh, developed world that's consuming consuming all of these uh, all of these resources. If we look at East Asia, for example, per hectare fertilizer use is higher than anywhere else. It's not quite the kind of pattern um, that you would uh, you would necessarily expect. And there'll be a few unpredictable patterns as I go along. Um, which countries are driving the world food system? Uh, it's easy to argue the United States, because the United States generates huge surpluses. But when we actually look at where, first of all, fruit and vegetable production is centralised in the world, China and India 
are the biggest producers on the planet. China, by far and away, the biggest uh, uh, producer of fruit and vegetables. When we look at meat production, you'd expect it to be the United States. Well, per capita, it is. But overall, China is still the biggest meat producer on the planet. When we look at cereal production, yes, you'd say, well, it's the United States that's driving the system. But actually, China is producing more cereals than the United States. The difference between the US and China in this respect is that the United States is generating huge surpluses for export. China is producing much smaller levels of surplus uh, for, 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 for export. In fact, minimally for export. But China's reserves in terms of the food supply that is available to feed its own population into the future, those numbers actually also drive international food prices, which I'll show you, show you in a second. So even if China is not exporting huge amounts of its, its surpluses, the levels of those surpluses are actually very important in driving world food prices. It's not just the United States. The United States, in terms of cereal production, uh, can say, well, they control... Um, about the same amount of the cereal market as, as China does. So China actually has a huge amount of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of, uh, of hidden power, if you will, in terms, of, in, terms of, in terms of world food prices. Okay, just the last one to round everyone. Fish and seafood production. China produces about nearly half of the world's fish. Produces, harvests, possibly even depletes. So to think about shocks and surpluses and how prices are, are buffered. First of all, this line here represents, okay, this is set at 100 1990. This is the FAO serial price index. And you can see that this, the price levels at the peak of the, of the, uh, of the, of the last oil shock um, went up nearly threefold, between two and threefold. When we look at stock-to-use ratio, this, is, this means how much surplus is there on the planet to be able to buffer. If all food production stopped now, how long could the world subsist on what is available? That number is actually a very important one. Um, the, you know, generally, uh, the panic starts if, if, if food availability declines below about two months. There isn't actually that much of a that much of a buffer. When we look at the, the, the global stock to use ratio, if there's more surplus, as as is seen in the early years, you know, ninety-seven to the year two thousand and two, when food prices food prices were much lower. When the reserves start to decline, prices start to go up. If you exclude China from this uh, from, from this number, actually there were fewer surpluses available. And, uh, and the dip uh, is, is, is much less so. Why would that be the case? Okay, uh, this unpacks some of, uh, some of what was going on in the years 2007-2008, in that this shows for rice, for maize, for wheat, the stock-to-use ratio. That's a percentage, okay? Uh, a number like um, for let's find wheat, uh, for wheat, uh, a number of about 20% is, 
is about two and a half months worth of, 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 of surplus wheat on the planet. This figure is China. That's China. That's China. When we look in those early years, when food prices were being driven down, down, down globally, China was actually generating nearly, uh, in terms of, of maize, was generate, had, had something like close to a year's buffer in terms of food production. If China is secure, with its over a billion people, um, then there's great positivity about what prices should be doing. There is indeed a big surplus. If China's reserves drop to, to around 20% in this case, or 30% in, in relation to rice, then you'll say, well, if those, those surpluses can drop dramatically, then that will mean China's call on resources in other places will increase dramatically. And given that you're talking about over a billion people, this is, this is about 20% of the world's population. If that demand increases by 1%, it could seriously mess with everybody else on the planet. So this is, this is how, 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 futures, how futures are reflected. Now that's one hit um, in all of this. What it says is that China, China's population isn't expanding so dramatically, but its desires to eat what it wants to eat is increasing. Every Chinese person eats one kilogram of pork more per week. That is an incredible increase in demand on cereals because those animals are produced you know, through, through intensive rearing. So you increase, you know, the increased demand for meat in China itself changes the surpluses that China has and also changes the amount of buffer there is in the world food system. It is actually an extremely fragile period that we're living through at the moment. The other piece to this is um, when the oil shock kicked in, the idea of biofuels um, had been developed only a few, in a few places. Brazil has the best um, uh, sugarcane-based biofuel system in the world. And they have been using biofuels, I think, for, for, for over a decade. Uh, at this point, you get a second shock. And Britain is coming up to an election soon. It is important to choose wise leaders, I will say this much. Uh, this is just a, a BBC News statement from, from January 2007, calling on a change in strategy to expand the use of alternative fuels. Sounds cool, sounds very ecological, sounds wonderful. To slow America's oil consumption. Okay? If you cannot secure supplies somewhere else, you've got to find some ways of maintaining uh, production of, of, of fuels because... As it has been said repeatedly, the American standard of living is not on the table for negotiation. That is very clearly, has been stated quite clearly many times. So 20 by 10 to, to reduce petrol consumption by a fifth within a decade. 20% um, over the next 10 years to replace 15% of the petrol used in vehicles with renewable fuels or biofuels. And another 5% by improving the fuel efficiency of cars. Well, that's cool. Fuel efficiency is a cool thing. Uh, the 20% saving would be equivalent to three-quarters of the current oil imports from the Middle East. That's significant. That's a significant number. Reduced dependency on, on, on overseas. 
But where are the fossil fuels meant to come from? Mostly corn. And then we have another story about corn in the United States. Um, production of biofuels will have to increase fivefold over present requirements if it's to come from corn. Now, what happens when you start to say, well, corn is going to be diverted from food production into fuel production? Well, immediately there was a crisis of confidence brought about by land speculation, not just in the United States. This is one example in Mexico. In Mexico, um, the, the news that land was going to be, was going to, uh, corn was going to be um, uh, used in biofuels um, suddenly resulted in a lot of land speculation in Mexico with respect to, yeah, with respect to, uh, uh, with respect to um, uh, corn production. Immediately, international corn prices increased. Um, uh, the so-called tortilla crisis um, resulted in uh, uh, expensive food on the streets. The staple food of the poorest people in Mexico was suddenly impacted by a decision that was made in Washington. Um, and you know, this was something that seemed an ecologically good and sound policy um, in the United States that had wide-scale implications for uh, people in, in, in other parts of the world. Did it drive it? Did low corn, did, did, uh, did low corn prices and high fuel prices drive this, this move to, to ethanol uh, production from, uh, from corn for biofuels? And one analysis, um, which is a British analysis, suggests that probably it didn't. Uh, but the fact that the policy was announced resulted in speculation that influenced uh, the price of these commodities. So what happened with the speculation? Corn prices increased dramatically uh, across, 2000, across 2008. Um, oil prices, this was the, the, the price shock of 2008, um, the most dramatic one in, uh, in, in, in history. But this is the ratio of uh, gasoline price to corn price. And actually, across this period, the ratio of gasoline price to corn price dropped, not below the real price of production, but below the subsidised price. So here you have an interaction of the farm bill, which is subsidising corn production, that makes corn cheap enough to turn into ethanol. So, so producing biofuels from corn in the US already has a significant subsidy from the state. They're simply moving corn from being one kind of form of energy, a dietary form of energy, into fuel energy. And what is interesting is how the energy debate is pulling all of these different pieces together. That it, there is, you know, the energy to drive machines and the energy to drive humans is corporatizing in, 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 in quite, a, quite a significant way. Okay, the food price increases that, that happened. Who were the winners? Who were the losers? Um, in terms of these price changes, the, the, the countries that were exporting most during these food price hikes, against okay, North America, uh, Brazil, Argentina, um, France, and a few other European countries, were, were net winners in terms of their balance of trade. The net losers are the same old story, sub-Saharan Africa. Africa in general, were overwhelmingly the losers because uh, they were not in a position to export. So as prices increased, there was an advantage to, 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 to international trade among those countries that were generating surpluses. We see with China, 
China becomes a, a country uh, that's a, a, a marginal importer and is a moderate loser within that time. American farm subsidies uh, are big numbers. Um, if we go back to these early periods, 1999 to 2003, 98 uh, to 2003, that the farm subsidies ranged between um, 12 billion and 24 billion a year in terms of subsidizing, subsidizing these food commodities. Big, substantial, substantial numbers. Um, just to show you that the European Union is not immune from this as well, that um, export subsidies, these are billions of euros to the European Union, 40 billion by the time we get to 2002 across the European Union. If we take this on a per capita basis, actually, the European Union is subsidizing its populations to, to a greater extent um, than, uh, than, the, than the United States. And some of this, decreasingly so in Europe, is to export subsidies. That there are ways in which they're both supporting markets, they're supporting, they're directly aiding the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the farmers themselves, but they're also supporting the export of their commodities to other countries. That, again, is another set of, uh, uh, set of relationships. What is the farm policy, and how, does, how do farm subsidies um, influence the, the, the knock-on food supply? Well, there are many ways in which subsidies can happen. Um, they can subsidise the farmers directly, they can subsidise... Uh, public universities and government agencies to research the crops. They can subsidies, uh, uh, subsidy, make subsidy payments that make up for the low prices. Um, and they can promise increased export markets. So marketing strategies to send stuff overseas if there's not a, if there's not a local market is significant. But the, the things that become more expensive are precisely the foods that would be conducive to good health. Fruits, vegetables, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, other, you know, frozen, other kinds of fruits and vegetables, to some extent cereals, but then you have soft drinks, fats and oils, sugars and sweets. These things all become majorly cheap. Corn isn't just corn. Corn is turned into sugar. Corn enters every part of the food system in the U.S., through high fructose corn syrup. So these are, the, the, the farm bill generates pre, the conditions for the generation of obesogenic environments. Okay, this is on the reading list, Food Without Thought. It's, it's, it's certainly worth reading. And how does this happen? Food, at its most intensive level, involves some of the most famous corporations on the planet. And they're not necessarily just the ones that deal with food. We have an industry... The agriculture itself is, is, is one of the cheapest parts of the system. The inputs into agriculture uh, globally are some $40 billion. 
and they include companies like Monsanto and DuPont that are you know, heavily heavy investors in uh, uh, genetic modifi mod modification of crops and, and, and the production of seed therefrom and all of those other inputs. That's on the land. On the farms, you have another $1.3 trillion in terms of what's being produced with, with this stuff. But then we have the processors and traders. Then we have, you know, what do you turn the commodity into? Because also we don't buy raw commodities as food. We buy them as, as usually, often, as, as package. Although you can buy the commodity, usually, usually this is a, a tiny proportion of the supermarket that deals with those commodities. Buying a bag of flour, buying a bag of barley, buying some lentils or pulses. And, and, and these, relative to their nutritional value, are much, much better value than, 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 than nearly all of the processed stuff, I should say. So food process, Nestle, Cargill, Unilever, Kraft Foods, all of these are add another 400 billion or so in terms of, in terms of production. Then you have these other companies. Now, all of these systems, these are systems uh, that are... Uh, are production systems that are, are locked into each other. So you might face up with Walmart or Carrefour in France or Tesco, and these are the these are the the, 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 the retailers. They you know interface with people and and the and the processors. So the processors are generating novelty in terms of in terms of in terms of foods. The retailers are testing and marketing this stuff and so there's a a, a, a relationship in the generation of, of novelty in the supermarket based on a small number of commodities. So if you see 50 varieties of pizza, 100 varieties of potato chips um, in a supermarket, that variety, that diversity is actually represents only a small number of commodities. But the, the, but the companies, the processors are generating you know, new flavors, new sensations, new experiences for people to, to, to keep on trying so that sales for the re uh, retailers um, uh, remain high. And, of course, food retailers are expanding, expanding internationally. <clears throat> and it's a very porous market. What happens in the U.S. affects everybody. Now, this is a telling slide in that it gives U.S. foreign direct investment in food manufacturing. And... Surprisingly enough, most of it is not spent in the United States. Most of it is spent in Europe. So we know that the US is a leader in, in food technology and has been from the 19th century and innovation in technologies. But this technology may be rolled up in one place, has implications for food systems everywhere else. And not just Europe, but also Latin America. Food production systems that are, are developed in the US find their way to other places. It means that these are systems that are ready to produce relatively cheap food, um, often based on the commodities that are uh, subsidized by, uh, by, by the farm bill um, to, to, to their populations. So, you know, we can describe an obesogenic environment in many places, but um, actually there's a big machine that, that drives it. We can also argue that actually putting out cheap food is a good thing. It should stop starvation. Well, it should, except um, at the moment, if it's the right slide, it is, uh, we have both 
something like 800, uh, 800 million people who are hungry on the planet. And we have numbers of obesity that are starting to approach those levels. So if pumping out cheap food is the answer, um, it can only be the answer if you can get rid of economic inequality. And yet economic inequality persists in increasing in most places in the world. The only thing that is halting the increase in economic inequality are social welfare systems. So the only countries that seem to be successful in holding back increases in inequality are countries like Denmark, um, Norway and Sweden, for example, where people are paying in excess, on average, of 50% of their income to the state as tax. These are the only things that are holding it back. So we have big problems with obesity, as you know, and we have big problems of undernutrition. And how will things change? Food security relative to nutritional requirements. Again, when we look at figures of undernutrition and calorie supply, um, the countries that seem to suffer most uh, are sub-Saharan Africa. But when we look at the number for South Asia, for India, in fact, the calorie supply for people in India are not too dissimilar for the calorie supply in sub-Saharan Africa. It's just the recommendations in India are set lower. India claims to be able to feed its own people. There's great political pride in being able to say it can feed its own people. Um, they have um, incredible systems for, for, for dealing with food insecurity. But the political reality of being able to feed themselves can only be achieved by rejecting recommended daily allowances that, for example, would be appropriate in Europe and other places. We can also say that relative to this, and sub-Saharan Africa is also, is also the loser. Now I want to turn to meat and meat products, in case you don't know what they look like. Here's some cows, here's some pigs. This is what happens to pigs and this is what happens to cows. Um, and what is of note is that anything that's a meat or meat product is a part of an animal that's been turned into something of economic value in the food system, one way or another. Things don't just disappear and get burned. Everything is used. <clears throat> World average meat consumption per, per person, as I've already said, has increased dramatically since the 1960s. By the year 2030, it's expected to have more or less doubled since the 1960s. That demand for meat is not disappearing. Its implications, okay, you can't see what these say, but this one says China and this one says India. Something says China, the next one says India. Even in India, where religion uh, prohibits a significant proportion of the population from consuming meat, the demand for meat is increasing dramatically. The only difference between India and China, apart from a slightly bigger population in China, is that the meat consumption in India is extremely low. But when we look at the level of demand for meat, the, the so-called developed countries, the increased demand for meat across the next 10 years or so, is going to be quite small. 
The demand for meat in, in China, however, is going to more than double. So the increased demand for meat has implications because the increased demand for meat is going to happen in those transitional countries, the countries that are improving, increasing their, their economic prosperity. And why wouldn't you? I would not deny any person in China the right to eat meat. If you want to, because I have the right to eat meat. You know, if I have that right, somebody else should have that. The only way I could renounce that right would be to, would be to stop eating meat and say, well, you know, it's actually damaging to the planet to be consuming this meat. Then I could take a, a different moral stand. While I'm a meat consumer, I cannot take that moral stand. The demand for cereals that comes out of this is something like a 60% a increase in cereal demands for China. And a lot of this is driven by the increased demand for meat, not just for a decline under nutrition. So, again, another way in which we can see China as influencing the world food security is through its consumption of grains. This increased consumption of grains, which is both declining its buffer stocks, its reserves and is, is, uh, is, is, is influencing world food prices. Okay, to turn to, to, to war, and just a, a quote from, from Eisenhower. I'll admit, I was just Googling for a good quote, and this is the one that came up, but it's not bad. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and not clothed. I chose to use an unlikely example in the first place, uh, which, is, which is Nazi Germany. And, and, uh, and uh, from 1918, uh, Germany from 1918 to 1951. This dip in the heights of children, six-year-old children, by the 19, uh, in, in the mid-1940s, reflects the level of food insecurity that was present in Germany um, during World War II because what, they start, what started to happen from the mid-1930s was that in building up towards, uh, the, towards warfare in the, in the 1930s, um, the government in power chose to sacrifice its own population in, in, in food security, in health, in other ways, um, in order to, 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 to fuel the, the, the war machine. And this decline in stature signifies incredible levels of undernutrition within Germany. The levels in the Netherlands were even higher. You could say the one success story out of World War II in Europe was actually Britain. And that is because during World War II there was a rationing system, there was a scientific... Um, evaluation of dietary requirements, how they could be met. And of course, this, the, these, the, these, the ration system bled. And of course, there was a black market. But at least there was a system in place to try and, sh try and ensure equal provision of food under conditions where supplies were not coming in from North America. Where, you know, have a look at Hyde Park. Next time you're in London. All of that was an allotment. All of that was given over to food production during World War II. You know that wonderful strip um, from, uh, 
from Queensway across to South Kensington, quite a wide, wide road. That was an emergency airfield um, during, during, the war, during the war. The country was changed. People were, were, were pushing for self-sufficiency. Every piece of land was, was, was being used and a rationing system was in place. Okay, some more countries um, signifying the negative effects of warfare, the negative impacts on war on food security. Just these are, This is historic data, but it doesn't matter. Um, Mozambique, this is between the early 1980s and, and, and around the year 1990. Mozambique, Angola, Malawi, Somalia, Zaire, Zimbabwe, Niger, Rwanda, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, all of these in Africa have had a negative, uh, uh, you know, the, the impacts of, of war and potential war has had huge negative impacts, whether it's minefields, whether it's building the machinery for war and therefore infrastructure declines, um, whether, it's, whether it's civil war and therefore people are taken out of, um, out of production because they're fighting war, whether it's mortality, all of these things contribute to war. Then the Middle East, Iraq, Syria, South Asia, Afghanistan, and the war it was fighting with Russia at the time. You can bet anything that Afghanistan's food security is in huge decline at the moment. Absolutely. Um, Mexico, Cuba, Haiti, Colombia, Romania, Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, all of these places where they've had significant strife has led to declining cereal yields. One calculation um, that was carried out by Marcione uh, at the Food and Agricultural Organization was what would the peace-adjusted food production be um, from the 70s to the, to, to, to the 90s? If you took out, if you just looked at what land was there, considered what was taken out of production and its potential, potential productivity, that by the time you get into the 1980s, there's quite a significant, up to 5% difference in food production according to whether a country is engaged in war or not. These are significant, significant numbers. Water is a problem. Irrigation, if you're going to expand agriculture, for example in South Asia, then the places where you will see larger uptake of water, places like South Asia, India, who consumes most water? Again, it's the developing countries where most water is being used in agricultural production. So increasing agricultural production is something that consumes an awful lot of water. What about water stress? There are already, in the 1990s, countries that were clearly defined as being water stressed, um, notably, um, uh, notably sub-Saharan African countries in the Middle East. But the projections into the future, countries like India, for example, um, uh, Mozambique, Zanzibar, the countries that are likely to experience water stress into the future. You look at a country like India, abutting onto China, who controls those rivers? Who controls the rivers that flow into India? Um, who controls the whole Ganges? Um, these are sort of irrigated, these rice agriculture depends on, on huge amounts of, uh, of irrigation, and therefore what happens with the water upstream determines what happens downstream. I'll tell you of a crazy water war that is about to erupt in Australia. Uh, it doesn't seem to be water stressed, and it shouldn't be, but there are things happening. 
There's a river called the Murray River. It flows through a state called New South Wales, it flows through a state called Victoria, and ends up in South Australia. South Australia has the lowest rainfall of all three of them. Water is not regulated at the federal or national level. It's regulated at, by state government. So the state government of New South Wales and Victoria can undertake, can, can dam water so they can do irrigated agriculture. In New South Wales, it's rice agriculture, which consumes a lot of water. And by the time you get to Adelaide, by the time you get to South Australia, the tap is pretty well turned off. So South Australian agriculture is in huge decline uh, because there is, the water isn't coming through. Water, even within a country that you know, should know better, is regulated in the wrong kind of way. That's within a country. You'll get disputes between India and China, between smaller countries in between. So they're predicting water wars. But water doesn't just happen, water stress doesn't just happen about to, by turning the tap off. Um, it also happens by having too much, as here in Bangladesh. So climate change, yes, we know about desertification, we know about the decline of the glaciers. Projections, uh, increased temperature, rising sea levels, um, increased rainfall variation is an important one, increased rainfall seasonality in some areas, reduced rainfall seasonality in other ways. What happens, what is likely to happen with climate change is increased vulnerability because the known patterns are changing. Predictability declines. Rising sea level. Bangladesh might see up to 24% of its population uh, being inundated by the sea because Bangladesh is one of the most low-lying countries on the planet. China, if it saw 2% of its population, coastal population, um, inundated by water, that's 2% of over a billion people. Significant numbers. And everywhere there's inundation, even if it's only tidal, even if it's only seasonal, brings in salinity and takes land out of production. El Nino events have also increased. And more El Nino events have been associated with low rainfall, in Asia, higher rainfall on the Pacific coast, and the future patterns are impossible to predict. This is, these are usual El Nino patterns. When an El Nino happens, you get dryness, you know, the rainy season doesn't happen. Or if you're in India, the monsoon season is just outrageous, and you know, it washes, washes your irrigated system away. So too much water can be as, as bad as anything. You get mudslides. You get erosion, you get towns disappearing, you get you know, everything that we hear about on the news. And I mean to say, when I hear about, about another catastrophe on the world, my first question is, where is it? And oftentimes it's where you predict it to be, on the basis of, of, of El Nino and, and climate change modelling. So I'm, I'm reasonably, reasonably convinced, whether or not it's human-made or not, it, to me it seems to be happening. Okay, just... Just a couple of figures and then I'm done, okay? First of all, what are the predicted changes in cereal production in the developing world? This is based on climate model prediction, so it's not reality. These are just models 
and they are used, you, um, they've been predicted in three places, Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory in the US, the Goddard Institute for Space Studies in the US, and the UK Met Office, Met Meteorological Office. You wouldn't believe UK Met Office is world leader in climate change. Um, if you just look at the climate and impact comes outside impact, is all negative. Even with adaptations, if people change what they do, they're still negative in terms of production. But using the same models in the developed world, so-called, climate change can actually carry a bonus. And carry a bonus to countries like Australia. And carry a bonus to the United States and Canada, for example. And you know, these, these scenarios are actually a chilling one because they suggest that with all of these, these calamities are going to happen in the places that already have had many calamities. So, you know, it's not good if you believe in things getting better. UK Millennium Project Task Force on Hunger recommends an African green revolution, for example. Female education empowerment. Um, African agro-dealers of high-yielding seeds. Fortified foods. School feeding programs. The thing is that none of these really deal with some of these upstream factors, these political ecological factors, which are the, which are the, you know, those global forces that actually, you know, put things out there. These are really lower-level downstream tweakings of systems. They're not really dealing with what's upstream. I can't change it. I'm just a little human ecologist, uh, but I can actually point out some, point out some of the problems, and maybe one of you will emerge to prominence and be able to speak louder than I can speak. Thank you.